Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. In our last episode, we heard from Natalie Bennett, Green Peer, about doing politics differently, how taking action at local level, being part of a community garden, a litter pick, joining a local conservation group are all forms of political action. For many of us, membership of a national conservation group such as the RSPB or the National Trust could now be seen as one such political act because these groups are mobilising to protect our countryside and seas against the new threat they face caused by the failure of this and previous administrations to act on their own commitments to protect the environment from degradation. Today, we're going to discuss whether nature is paying the price for a decade of inaction with my guests Richard Benwell and Kate Jennings. Richard Benwell is CEO of the Wildlife and Countryside Link, WCL, which is the largest environment and wildlife coalition in England with over 60 member organisations. Richard has spent many years fighting for stronger laws to stop climate change and create a better environment for everyone, both within and outside Parliament. And he is now also Director of UK Youth for Nature and Chair of Oxfordshire's Local Nature Partnership. Not sure how you fit all that in, Richard, but hello and welcome and thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me again, Amanda. Great to see you guys. My second guest, Kate Jennings, is Head of Site Conservation Policy at the RSPB, a position she's held since 2012. She previously worked as a site policy officer for the RSPB and as a senior officer and site designation officer for Natural England. She tells me she spends a lot of time inside looking at policy and not enough time out on reserves. Hello, Kate. Lovely to see you. Very nice to be here. Hi, Amanda. Richard, I read Wildlife and Countryside Link's new report, Nature 23 Habitats Progress, this morning. And I have to say, I found it deeply worrying and a bit depressing. Um, it's pretty gloomy, isn't it? Well, you started off talking about grassroots action that Natalie Bennett's been thinking about. And and 30 by 30, which is the subject of this report, sort of comes from the other end of things. It's a a global movement to start to realise that we need to protect 30% of our land and sea for nature pretty pronto, so by 2030. And hopefully... At the end of this year, the world will come together to agree a new nature deal. And part of that, we hope, will be this 30 by 30 pledge to protect a third of our land and sea for nature. So actually, that's, that in itself is quite a, an optimistic thing. Uh, the thought of the nations of the world coming together behind such a pledge is really exciting. And to stay positive for a moment... <laughs> Uh, we, we need to try. Um, the government here in the UK has has been pretty progressive about it. And it got in there early as part of a an international coalition to support 30 by 30 at sea. And it pledged a couple of years ago that it would do 30 by 30 on land as well. So great news so far. Everybody's saying they want to do the right thing. But (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately, uh, the report that we've uh, just published shows that in terms of practical progress towards 30 by 30, the the government is a long way off track. So our findings show that compared with last year, the government's added just 0.22% of the land to its score on 30 by 30, bringing it up to 3.22%. And at sea, it's done a little bit better. So it's moved from 4% to 8%. But in in both of those areas, we're still a long way off with just eight years left to go to reach the target. 
And the other big message of the report, which is a worrying one in the current context, is that if the government ploughs ahead with its wrong-headed agenda of ideologically driven deregulation, if it takes away some of the fundamental protections for land and sea that we've relied on for ages, we could end up going backwards and not forwards on 30 by 30. So we've set out some practical measures that the government could take quickly to get back on track. Uh, Maybe we can talk about those in a bit. But the overall message for government is don't waste time messing around with deregulation. We need to get on with 30 by 30 now. Yeah. And that was an ambitious target, 30 by 30. And and as you say, we committed to that a couple of years ago. But there was that followed on for quite a long period of of, um, inaction on commitments that were made much, much earlier, back last decade, um, to better environmental protection, um, to ensuring that we're looking after some of the sites that we've already nominally designated as being of extreme importance, either ANOBs or triple SIs. So, so it's really building kind of apathy in action on top of more apathy in inaction in a way, isn't it? And, and you know, this stuff is really, really important to people and communities as well as to to our planet and our ecosystem, isn't it, Kate? I mean, your members are, to quote, angry about some of the things that are happening because they care about the environments that, that you're trying to protect on their behalf. Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, the usually mild-mannered RSPB, uh, along with many of our partners, are really angry about this. Um, because as Richard has said, well, we have these these really ambitious commitments. What we're seeing is is an attack on nature, a kind of three pronged attack, uh, which, if it continues, will do away with the fundamental building blocks that you need for government to make good on any of its promises. And as you say, we have a long history of this. So, so the last. Uh, set of global targets for the decade that ran from 2010 to 2020, the so-called Aichi targets. Same story again, bold commitments, high-level promises, failure to meet those targets. So the last decade was a lost decade for nature. Today we've had uh, the latest WWF report highlighting that since 1970 we've seen a 70% decline in wildlife populations. We don't have time for another lost decade. And the fear is that that's exactly where we're heading. Yeah, and I think that it, what strikes me about this is that, that you know, as you say, these are mild-mannered organisations. And, and if we were to look at your kind of membership list, Richard, you know, those 66-plus organisations that you look after in that coalition, they are. They're the Worldwide Fund for Nature and the RSPB, but they're organisations that you don't normally associate with direct action with rebellion with with even ruffling feathers if i may say so they're organizations that have their hearts and their and their minds and their work rooted in the environment but they're not you know they're not at the xr spectrum are they so are you sensing a change amongst many of those organizations as well because i know we've talked about the rspb but are there others who are as angry and upset about this too well, we have we have a whole range amongst our membership, and some of them are pointier than others. Uh, if you want to look for an organisation that's out there at the the radical end of of legal action, you know we've got Wild Justice, uh, who are never tame. Uh, but at the other end of the scale, we've got some professional bodies uh, and some uh, some 
clubs essentially who are focused on things like wildlife gardening uh, and and these organizations are not easily riled they're not put together by people who are used to doing political activism they're put together by people who love nature and yet so great is the feeling of threat at the moment that that passion for nature has turned into passion for action at the political sphere and people are demanding stronger uh, environmental measures from government and that's really the key isn't it that as you said a minute ago Amanda we've failed enough times not only can we not afford to waste years now messing around we need stronger better commitments from government and that's why we need to keep the positive messages going forward to 30 by 30 is a key example we can't just hold on to what we've what we've got the little pockets of nature that are left we need to be expanding out into the wider countryside and making space for for nature's recovery if that's a if that's a terrifying political demand then then uh so be it but to me it's the stuff of life uh, and absolutely right that all these organizations are getting getting um, motivated to call for it from government so <clears throat> If we were to make 30 by 30 work, and that is the premise that, you know, you're reporting on the progress to date, which is woeful, and we can go into some of the detail of that in a minute, but just the concept of 30 by 30. Now, this isn't just, you know, a set of very, it's a very neat phrase, isn't it, by 30 by 30, you know, neat numbers. What is it that we are trying to do? Are we trying to take land that is currently um, degraded or used for something else back to a state of of wild or are we trying to protect bits of park that um and national parks or triple si's or something that we've already got and make them bigger i mean what is where is that 30 percent of the land going to come from what was it what would it be made up of you're so right the numbers can be really dangerous can't they i'm i'm doing 40 by 40 to try and make sure i can still run by a certain speed by the time i hit my 40th birthday uh, and as the oxford half marathon approaches i'm seriously regretting it when i'm not having pudding <laughs> they do sound gimmicky but 30 by 30 is built on some uh, serious scientific assumptions so i think there's good uh, science to show that our protected site network um in in the uk needs to be expanded so the core area of protected sites is about seven or eight percent of England at the moment that could do with ideally doubling as part of its contribution to 30 by 30 but nobody's saying that all these spaces need to be just nature reserves where people can't go we're also talking about um creating wildlife friendly farming we we hope that some of the best regenerative farming techniques will contribute towards 30 by 30 and we're talking about things like national parks and airbnbs where if the rules that uh, govern those are changed to ensure they work better for nature large areas of those places that are so important for people to enjoy can be brought in as well that that's the sort of thing isn't it kate yeah i mean i think there's there is there are some really obvious steps that we can take so the first and the really critical thing is about making sure that the places that are protected for nature are in good condition and are really driving nature's wider recovery. So at the minute in England, 8% of England on land is protected for nature. 3% of that is in good nick. So the laws we have that, that protect those sites from things like development work relatively well. We have a long history of a failure to use the many legal tools that we have um, to ensure that those places are well managed. 
So that's that's about uh, being clear about what's needed. It's about supporting land managers to put in place the right kinds of management. It's about taking action against those who damage those sites. So, so step one, focus on quality, not quantity, because if we get more, but it's not good for nature, that's kind of missing the point. Uh, as Richard says, we should be looking to at least double that area of, of land that's protected specifically for nature. And, and governments um, and Natural England, the, the Nature Agency in England, have both undertaken reviews of our protected areas networks. So we know where the gaps are. There's a shopping list. So that's not a difficult thing to do. Then we have our national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. They are protected, but primarily for for landscape and heritage alongside wildlife. And, and a review by government a couple of years made, made quite clear that wildlife had really kind of missed out in that equation. So, so there are some fairly fundamental reforms needed to put nature kind of front and centre um, of what those places deliver and to provide the powers and the resources that are needed to do that. Loads of people in those landscapes wanting to do it. They just They just need the tools to do the job. And then we can look, as Richard says, beyond that. We have large areas of, of badly degraded habitat, that, but that could be brought back into really good condition. And across, across all of that 30%, as Richard says, what we, what we need is 30% where nature comes first, not where nature is the only thing. So there are a lot of forms of land management that are entirely compatible with, indeed are essential to drive nature's recovery whether that is large-scale upland peat restoration, whether that is regenerative farming. So a lot of these things can live side by side. And, and I guess the final point I'd want to make is that we're talking about the 30% where we need to put nature first. We are one of the most nature-depleted countries on Earth, and what we need is to restore nature across our landscapes and, and here the 30% is key because these are the places from which we can drive nature's recovery. If we're going to recover nature, it's got to come from somewhere. And the best of the places that are left is where it's hanging out. So, so you know, what we do in the 30% is absolutely critical to our ability to drive that, that wider recovery that we need to see. Kate, I, I can hear Charles Clover shouting at his Walkman, uh, we're in danger of forgetting the sea. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I was going to come on to the sea oh, good. Um, because because I thought we'd had some quite good news about the sea because recently we spoke to um, we spoke to Blue Marine about the Dogger Bank decision and the special marine protected areas and the fact that they were no longer going to allow dredging and things. So I was thinking, hurrah, fantastic. And then I read the other day that they're planning to put a huge wind farm on the Dogger Bank. So I'm now really confused as to whether or not protecting an area of the sea in underneath an MPA actually really means protecting it. Because surely sticking, a, you know, much as I love wind farms, sticking a sucking great wind turbine into the seabed is going to do a significant amount of damage. So, Richard, what does it mean to truly protect those marine areas as part of 3030? Uh, I think there are, diff there are different scales of protection. Um, so in we hope that the government will stick to its promise of highly protected marine areas where basically we're talking about drawing a line around and saying this is for nature first uh, and please don't do anything in it. So no uh, fishing, no dredging, no wind farms, nothing. Ex exactly. Uh, and that, that provides you a core to a network where um, 
if your main priority is is fisheries and things, you know, we've seen the evidence that these are great places to replenish fish stocks, great places to be sort of arc areas for nature to recover. Outside that, there's another question about prioritising nature at sea, but doing it in a way that might be compatible with other activities. We definitely like to see the government use its bylaw making powers to uh, stop dredging across the protected area network. And we've had the first couple of sites done there, uh, but there's a long way to go. So that's uh, some, somewhere the government needs to act quickly. With things like wind farms, well, the key is taking up pressures elsewhere to allow for the development we need for marine renewables, because for, to solve climate change, we've got to deploy renewables at scale at sea so it needs to be spatially planned and it needs to be done in a way where we're saying if the sea is going to take this we're going to have to reduce the pressure of fisheries leisure activities other industrial activities on the marine environment elsewhere that's why a strategic approach at sea in particular is so important i suppose you know we we think this is the right thing to do your members think it's the right thing to do um Many of us are totally convinced there would be people who would say, look, we're in the middle of an economic crisis. Um, you know, we're suffering from, you know, post-Brexit financial malaise. We can't take away jobs from fishermen. We can't just protect bits of the land that we should be putting under agricultural use for food security. You guys are fine, but really this isn't practical or realistic. I mean, I guess that that kind of misses the fundamental point that nature underpins all of that stuff. So, I mean, this literally is about life on Earth. So, so you know, nature, we're part of it. It underpins the economy. It's fundamental to health and well-being and clean air and clean water. And, and I think, you know, there has absolutely been an attempt to portray those who are talking about an attack on nature as being anti-growth. As we talk about the anti-growth coalition. And, and I think we need to be to be absolutely clear, as as reports produced for the Treasury have made uh, entirely obvious that 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 economic growth and indeed our ongoing survival is is dependent on nature. Um, and and there is there is no incompatibility between growth and nature's recovery. What is not compatible is nature's recovery and deregulation. It's been really interesting. Um, watching quite a lot um from from industry and business joining what is being advertised as the anti-growth coalition but most definitely is not mm, absolutely H how worried are you both by by the idea of not just the um the abandonment of those those important regulations around habitat which you obviously partly a hangover from our membership of the European Union, but also things like the investment zones, where it seems to me we're creating free-for-alls and, and, and the idea that we might have countless numbers of these, you know, up into the, you know, 10s, 20s, 30s of these areas, where you'll have no regulation about anything. How, how worried are you about, about those? Pretty worried. Gluing yourself to the road, level of worried or...? <laughs> Definitely into the considering gluing to the road end of the scale. And and I mean, I guess, yeah, and, and those those two things interact. So you describe the habitats regulations as a hangover from our membership of the European Union. Um, 
they're actually a, a, a hangover for the European Union of UK membership, if that makes sense, because we were fundamental to writing them and championing them. It's Tory governments who helped to write and to land this legislation the whole way across Europe because they thought it was important. So, so it's a UK legacy, really, not a not an EU one. How much under threat then is it, Kate? I mean, if we were instigated it, are, are we right in thinking that it's actually in the statute book to such an extent that we would require a vote in Parliament to get rid of it? Or is it only the sort of legislation for some of our European um, laws which can be overturned by the whim of a Secretary of State? Yes, yeah, so so this is all written in at the moment to secondary legislation, which which can be overturned with very little parliamentary scrutiny. And, and that's the concern. This retained EU law bill, which has been laid, um, would, would basically allow for, for, for those protections to be removed. Um, with very little, if any, safeguards in place around around that happening. So, so the risk is that everywhere ends up a bit like an investment zone. Um, uh, and and then sat within that is this subset of the investment of the investment zones, the size of which we don't yet know. I mean, we know about thirty eight local authorities have expressed an interest in having them, but I guess I guess the the investment zone risk is a microcosm of the wider risk we we face across the whole landscape as a result of that retained EU law bill. Richard, what can we do? Well, there will be votes in Parliament before any decisions are made on the future of any of these things. So um, the, the legislation that we're talking about here is the retained EU law reform or repeal bill. Uh, and in the context of 30 by 30, 30 by 30 is one of those wonderful promises that the government has made us to do something good, but it relies upon a foundation of strong laws like the habitats regulations, like the water framework regulations, like the marine strategy regulations, which are all EU derived law. And what this bill would do is at a sunset date at the end of next year, if the bill is passed in its current form, those laws would simply cease to have effect en masse. There's a provision for the government to extend that by a couple of years if it does, hasn't had time to work through the laws. But the sort of cliff edge that's looming is, is a scary one. And we're talking about mass portions of the statute book here, 900 laws for DEFRA covering waste, water, air, habitats, um, pesticides, all of those things. Um, it would be a completely daft government that allowed us to hit that cliff edge because some of these laws just help business work from day to day. But the risk is that they're going to make mistakes. They're going to mess around with things as they go. Uh, and that they're going to um, want to show a symbolic change from the EU and in doing so lose important laws. So what can people do? The bill hasn't even started and there will there could be votes at every stage. There can be a vote at second reading at the end of October. There can be numerous votes through committee stage, which is coming a couple of months later. Uh, there'll be have to be a re- vote at report stage, then it goes through the House of Lords. So there are loads of chances to talk to your MP and say, yes, we can definitely see areas where the law can be improved for nature over and above the EU. We can list some. We can say that the all protected sites should be afforded the same strong status. We can say that loads more projects and plans should be included for assessment. We can uh, say that the sites should be more adaptable for climate change. Yes, we need to move forward, but don't do it in this mad rush way. 
that's basically press release in legislative form uh, to show uh, the sort of Brexit agenda being finalised. Let's do it in sensible, considered fashion and see how we can improve the statute book for, for nature and for all those other things, not rush at it. So people can get out there and say, don't do this daft thing with the EU retained law bill. <laughs> and, and, ha- and have we any other structures that we can rely on? I mean, d- does Natural England have a role to play here? Can they, uh, will they be advising the government? I mean, how, is it just up to those of us who are parts of, you know, these, these, these largely not-for-profit organisations who will be campaigning and making our voices heard? I think it largely falls on us. I mean, there is there is the new uh, Office for Environment Protection, which is the new regulator uh, or watchdog rather for the environment in England. Um, but but when it comes to this kind of thing, their their role revolves around advice to government, um, and and everything we've seen from them so far suggests that their advice will be robust. But advice is just advice, uh, and what we need right now is is action. Um, so I think, you know, those of us who care about nature, um, those organisations whose whose very purpose is to save nature feel a real sense of responsibility to lead for action here. What we're hoping is that this 30 by 30 model can be one that's replicated the world around. And it's incumbent on us as a country where, despite um, inequality, we are still relatively affluent to show how this can be done in a way that doesn't leave people behind, doesn't amplify social justice problems, but actually, to use the lingo of the time, helps toward uh, the the levelling up agenda and how we can achieve 30 by 30 as a part of a sustainable and just transition to a more uh, more sustainable and circular economy. And that means things like using uh, farming support uh, in an intelligent manner. So we know farmers are going to have a huge role to play in nature's recovery and in 30 by 30. We know we're going to have to ask them to change the way they farm in many cases. But we need to do that sensitively and realise that these are family businesses often on the edge of um, uh, of viability. Uh, And so payments need to be generous. They need to be well flagged far in advance to allow people to plan Uh, and the same for people in fishing communities as you said before Amanda you know these are livelihoods we're talking about and in around the world how much more we don't want to replicate some of the bad sort of climate or nature colonialism of the past where we say you can't have this amount of land we need to work with communities and bring them in and help to pay and structure uh, the transition in a way that provides all those wonderful nature benefits at the same time as supporting people through the change. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add, I don't think, um, I think it's wrong to see this as some sort of, you know, dream of the, the southeast urban elite. So I'm sat here in North Yorkshire, I'm a couple of hundred metres away from the edge of a national park. We know that an awful lot, um, some of the most deprived communities, they tend to suffer the most from things like pollutants in the air from unclean water we know uh, communities in the north of england for example particularly vulnerable to flooding and a lot of that is about the state of our uplands most of which are protected sites most of which are in bad condition and if they were in better condition there'd be a lot less flooding downhill basically the bogs aren't holding as much water as they should and if we got them back into good nick they'd hold that water 
There are, uh, you know, traditional mixed family farms all around me here who are increasingly embracing a move towards regenerative agriculture, which delivers both sustainable food, healthy soil, uh, you know, which we know we've got a massive problem with, um, and loads of wildlife. But they're relying on this promised move towards a system that pays farmers public money for public goods not public money for just owning a load of land. And interestingly, the RSPB um, commissioned some independent polling last year, and, and this was about national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. And we questioned, or the, the people who did it for us, so that we were blind to what was going on, um, questioned both people who lived inside those landscapes and people who lived outside those landscapes. The number one thing they wanted to see in those places was more wildlife they were totally cool with the idea that what those places look like would change a bit in order to bring back more wildlife. And the really fascinating thing was that while the results were consistent between those who lived outside, who might be your, you know, your southeast London types who go to the Peak District on holiday, and consistent between them and the people who lived inside the landscapes, those views were held even more strongly by the people who lived inside. That's a really important message, and I'm I'm sure not what some were expecting to hear. Mm. So what you've told me is quite clearly that, that the UK, if I can broaden it out, feel that we need to take action. We we welcome decisions about the, 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 the commitment to 30 by 30, and that we would be right behind some of the calls at COP15, which is the biodiversity COP. What you haven't said is that the current government has any mandate for doing any of the things that it's proposing <laughs> to do, which will turn all of that on its head. So I guess, as you've said, we need to write to MPs, but we probably do need to all mobilise and get small or big P political because we have got to force this change before too much damage is done. Absolutely. And and on that point, I mean, it, it's it's really interesting because all of the uh, all of the available evidence is that there isn't a mandate for this government to do this. Um, so there's a group called Unchecked uh, who specialise in, in in polling and focus groups, um, and they've done some work, particularly in the red and blue walls, um, which obviously have particular political significance. Um, and what they find in those places is that people's assumption about about leaving the EU was that we would have stronger and better regulation, that they want to see more enforcement, that they that they value action which recovers nature as well as delivers on food security. So, I mean, all of the available evidence really clearly demonstrates that mandate, doesn't it? Richard, I'm going to give you the last word. Well, on the flip side, I think it's really important to remember that sometimes we need to force the government to do things and we fought and ranted on and really cornered them to get things. Actually, 30 by 30, the government showed real leadership on uh, and this is something that the government uh, came to the table with itself, and we've celebrated it. Uh, admittedly, at first, they thought they were already there on the day they signed it, pretty much, uh, and said they'd hit 30 or 40% at sea and 27% on the land. But the government is now being honest about how far it's got on the whole and uh, realises that it's not yet there. And some of the solutions that will help them to achieve this are also things that the government has made good progress on. So the review that Julian Glover did about protected landscapes could get us a huge amount of the way there. 
the farming reforms that came uh, with public money for public goods, if they keep going with it, then that could uh, make a huge difference too. So what we're talking about in terms of mandate is to say to the government, look, you've set this agenda. It's something that really backs up those massive promises you made in the 25-year plan, first generation to pass on nature in better condition, and in the manifesto, which promised to set out the most ambitious environmental programme on earth. If you meant those things, keep going with those agendas you've set uh, and demonstrate real leadership in making 30 by 30 happen. The flip side, as Kate's just said, is something that nobody has uh, called for. Uh, and indeed, the, the perceived benefits to business are, are short-term, illusory, and only really will end up transferring costs uh, to the public and to the environment. They won't reduce costs. They'll simply foist them on you and me. I think it's a watch this space. I have a feeling we might be coming back and having another conversation about this. But thank you both so much. And, and, and thank you for giving us a, a glimmer of hope and also an action plan. Get active, get involved, join a group. And we'll really look forward to, to hearing how the government um, respond and reply to the to the report and to the, to the progress report, Richard. So thank you, Richard. And thank you, Kate, for being with us. It's been absolutely fantastic, as always, to talk to you. Thank, thank you. you. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Jim, that was fascinating, wasn't it? There are some good things there, some positive things to take away, but also some things for us as always to be concerned about and a bit worrying about what might be happening. But we were talking about national parks and uplands and peat bogs and things, but we've got incredible nature that we need to protect right on our doorstep don't we we do we do amanda through the window that i'm looking through now is my oak tree in my garden i'm very very lucky because i've got a fantastic oak tree um and it kind of reminds me every day of the, the beauty of nature and the power of nature but at the moment um when i go through my at my front door i have to put on a, a tiln helmet because um i what I've got acorns raining down on me all the time. It's absolutely amazing. It's like being under bombardment, literally. Um, This year, we've had a real bumper crop of acorns. And as you know, lots of things feed on acorns, sort of mice, badgers, jays, squirrels, pigs even. I mean, mean, it seems that you you get a smaller crop of acorns when there are loads of these sorts of creatures. And and it kind of helps to keep the population in check. And then when the numbers decline, the tree suddenly produces loads more acorns and it encourages the animals to feed. It helps them to produce, you know, more and healthier young. But it also ensures that there are loads of seeds and loads of acorns uh, that don't get eaten and they'll grow into new trees. So it helps to sort of ensure the survival of both the animals uh, and the trees themselves. So, you know, nature is amazing at being able to find that balance, isn't it? You know, and that's something that, you know, we could really learn from, I guess. How does the tree know? That's a really good question. It's amazing. I mean, they communicate with one another. We know that. I think a lot of it is through a sort of the so-called mycorrhizal fungal network, you know, what some people have called the wood wide web, which I think is great, isn't it? You know, the wood wide web. But they do communicate because well, my tree, it's what they call a mass year when you get that sort of abundance of acorns. But all the other oak trees are doing the same thing. So they all kind of communicate to each other somehow. And it might be something in the wind. It might just be sort of chemicals that, are, that get transmitted. I don't know. But it is amazing how they do that. You know, but this superabundance is supposed to happen, you know, it's generally reckoned to happen once every five to 10 years. We had one in 2020. So, you know, something is happening. Uh, it generally happens, it requires a warm and dry spring, you know, and it does, I think, as weather patterns change and as the climate changes, then I think we're going to see more of these sorts of things happening. And it, you know, kind of throws nature a little bit out of balance. So 
you know, it's there's got to be some accommodation there. Do you know, I reckon it's 117 years old. Uh, and I worked that out by measuring its girth, which is, you know, it's the circumference or the distance around the tree at about sort of a metre from its base, which is about, for my tree, it's about three metres. And you divide that by the average rate of growth per year, which is about two and a half centimetres. And you, if you, you work it all out, you know, you get your, get your age. So 117 years. So if that's right, it was probably, it's either planted or sprouted from an acorn around about 1905. Two things about 1905, two things which are actually close to your heart, I think. First of them, it's the first public suffragette protest by Emily Pankhurst. Was it? Uh, at Westminster. Wow. It was. And also close close to your heart, or Peter's heart, Crystal Palace Football Club was founded. It was a, clearly a seminal year for many reasons. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it was yeah. Well, it's, a, it's the year. The, it was the first year that Cadbury Dairy Milk uh, chocolate bar was produced, uh, and also the Red Cross Society was formally founded. And I don't think the two necessarily go hand in hand. I'd like to say I suspect all of those very important um, foundings and birthings have had centenary parties and celebrations, but I suspect your tree hasn't. I, I probably hasn't actually. No, it probably hasn't. But I, I, I think there's always a party going on because you know, as well as me looking at it and uh, being, you know, admiring it and being absolutely enthralled, and I go and touch it every now and again. I go and sort of talk to it because I just feel that's a nice thing to do. But you know, the, the trees they support something like two thousand three hundred species of, of of insects, of butterflies, of moths, etc. There are about three hundred and sixty species which actually depend on the tree for on the oak tree for survival. Um, and about 230-odd who are rarely found on anything other than an oak tree. So things like the purple hair streak butterfly, uh, oak mining bee, which feeds on the, the pollen from the oak flower. So really important for all sorts of reasons. They're the most carbon-absorbing tree, if you like, if that's the right way of expressing it. What I would say to anybody, if you possibly can, if you possibly can find space if you've got a garden, plant an oak tree. If you can't, go and visit somewhere that's got an oak tree sponsor an oak tree encourage the you know encourage growing of oak trees maybe maybe you could plant some of those spare acorns and you know we could give them out to planet plod listeners we could have a little set of potted up jim's oaks in pots i have i've got so many of them absolutely yes i mean and (laughs) let us know if you want an oak tree jim was happy to provide but you know i'm an ex-royal naval person as you know so i've got as well as getting salt in my blood i've got a heart of oak so they are (laughs) As if. And if anyone has a pig they can lend Jim, let us know, because it would save him having to actually sweep up the spare acorns because at the moment they're being swept up. And not all of them, I know, are going into plant pots. Some of them are going no. into the green waste. So they so this is called great. out for listeners for a pig. Jim, as always, wonderful to talk to you. And thank you thank for you. bounding off another Planet Pod episode. You've been listening to Planet Pod, everybody. Until next time, take care and goodbye. You've been listening to Planet Pod. We'd love to hear from you, so please do get in touch and don't forget to follow us on social media. 